0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented
1: by University of California Television.
2: Thank you very much for coming, and we have a very uh, interesting topic today, Big Ideas to Fix the Golden State. And I don't know how many of you saw that uh, there was a budget compromise yesterday. I read about it in the Chronicle today, and I thought to myself, coincidence I don't think so. (laughs) Uh, I'd like to think the legislators were aware of this panel and they didn't want to give them too much fodder that they still didn't have a budget agreement. So some good has come out of this already. Uh, I'd mentioned to the panelists who have very distinguished backgrounds that I'm going to be very brief in my introductions of them. Uh, I think you're all aware of their distinguished careers and also you have some literature as well where you can go into more detail. I'm going to introduce them in the order that they will be speaking and we're going to be going left to right. Uh, First of all is Henry Brady, Dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy, received his PhD in Economics and Political Science from MIT, President of the American Political Science Association, Director of the University of California Survey Research Center. He knows about what he speaks. Uh, Then, uh, Sonny Wright-McPeak, the president and CEO of the California Emerging Technology Fund. Uh, she served for three years as the secretary of the California Business Transportation and Housing Agency for Governor Schwarzenegger. She was resp- now these numbers really impressed me. I must say, responsible for more than forty-two thousand employees and a budget in excess of eleven billion dollars. That's something. Uh, Prior to that, she was president and CEO of the Bay Area uh, Council for seven years, member of the Contra Contra Costa County Board of Supervisors, member of the California Forward Leadership Council. Uh, Again, very distinguished credentials. And last, and certainly not least, Bruce Kane, Heller Professor of Political Science and Director of the UC Washington Center. So we have a chance he has tremendous expertise in California, but also perhaps he can give us a ch- little bit of an insight as to how California is being viewed uh, on the right coast. Uh, he has authored and co-edited, co-edited numerous books, including Constitutional Reform in California, uh, and also he's written, written extensively on all of this, and he's a very regular commentator on television and radio, so I'm sure you're aware of his perspective uh, from other previous things. Our format's going to be very simple, uh, starting with uh, Henry, where each, uh, each panelist will speak for perhaps uh, five to ten, up no more than ten minutes. And I've told them, we had a, a very nice half an hour discussion before the panel commenced that, and every, I think everyone agrees, times are really tough. I mean, anyone that's been in California for a long time, we know we go through these cycles, peaks and valleys, and we always seem to come out of it, but I think it's fair to say that the panel feels this is a little rougher. I mean things, there's a real paradigm shift here, and so there's reasons to be perhaps even more concerned than we have been previously, and I think also everyone recognizes people are very anxious, there's a lot of anger, and so I think we want it to be a very blunt discussion and I'm, I, knowing people from Berkeley, I know you will be in your questions and I hope you will. I mean, it's, in other words, uh, I always say there's nothing worse than if you leave something you thought, gee, I wish we'd talked about this or why didn't they address that issue. It, it's incumbent upon all of us to ensure that that doesn't happen. But I'd like to start out with Dean Brady.
3: Great. Thank you. Uh, it's uh, wonderful to be here today. Thanks to the Cal class of 68, which has brought an enormous amount of energy. Uh, to the Goldman School, and I think to the campus. And it's really a great privilege to be associated with that class. I'm going to talk a little bit about some background, just to sort of set the stage for what my two uh, friends here will talk about in more detail and tell you about maybe more about solutions to the problems. I'll talk a little bit about that. But I think it's important to get some of the basic facts down first. Uh, You can't spend more than you have. Well, you can for a while, but you can't keep doing it. And one of the things you have to understand is how wealthy you are. California in the 1960s had a gross state product per capita of about 125% of the national average. We were a rich state. We were rich because of oil, agriculture, and defense industries based upon government contracting. Uh, The aerospace uh, industry located here because of our amenities, our highly educated and highly skilled workforce and our higher educational institutions, which provided for innovation and new ideas. Because we were a rich state, we could employ moderate tax rates to raise large amounts of tax dollars. And then we could spend that money on K-12 education, transportation uh, infrastructure, water infrastructure, uh, education, and higher education. And through our our natural attractions, our infrastructure, our educational system, we created a high amenity, higher education oriented, and high tech economy that relies upon Hollywood uh, and Pixar and things like that, Silicon Valley, biotech, and increasingly uh, clean energy, green kinds of industries. By and large, this kind of industry Wants the amenities, the infrastructure, and the robust ed- educational system that we have. Partly now, K through twelve is not as good as it used to be. Higher education is still world class. Along the way, we created a tax system which is a creaky mess. Uh, Prop thirteen uh, changed uh, the way we do taxes in the state of California. It moved away from the property tax to the state, and the state relies very heavily on a very progressive. Uh, income tax, and on a sales tax, and to some extent a corporate income tax. Uh, But those are the three big ones. Uh, These taxes are highly volatile. In good times, we raise lots of money. In bad times, we don't raise much money at all. And that means the taxes go like this, and we face the situation that in good times, the legislature spends the money, and in bad times, it has a heck of a hard time figuring out how to cut the budget back. So the highly volatile tax system is a real problem for this state. We also created along the way a governance system based partly upon our wonderful progressive era principles uh, that has lots of initiatives, and then through those initiatives, we got lots of veto points in the system. By that, I mean two-thirds rules to make any decisions, uh, all sorts of restrictions on how money can be spent, Prop 98 that says 40% of the general fund budget has to go to K-12 education and also community colleges, uh, and we keep doing that. On this ballot right now, we have at least Propositions 21, 22, 24, and 26, which would make additional kinds of restrictions on how we do our business here in the state of California. We just keep doing this to ourselves. So, we've got that kind of background. Uh, What do we spend money on in this state? About a third of the budget goes to K-12 education. About a third goes to health and human services. That includes Medicaid, but it also includes welfare, although that's a... A diminishing part of the budget because it's been heavily cut over the last few years and the governor yesterday actually cut it even more and then transportation and other infrastructure which is about 10% of the budget so K through 12 one-third health and human services one-third transportation and other infrastructure about 10% that's about 75% of the budget right there and then Corrections and higher education are about 20% of the budget with Corrections moving up and higher education moving down, until just recently, this new budget actually reverses that trend uh, so that higher education is starting to creep up back again, although that still means we're far cry from where we were once, where higher education was much, much greater funding than corrections and uh, prisons. Okay, along the way, we made lots of costly decisions. Expensive transportation, water, and energy infrastructure. That's the amenities business wants. Incarceration of large numbers of people for long periods of time through three strikes, uh, criminalization of drug use, determinant sentencing, generous pension plans for police, first responders, and prison guards, and to a lesser degree, other public employees, and a three-tiered higher education system with community colleges, CSUs, and UCs, wonderful, I think, but expensive. Okay, today, remember we used to be rich. Now we're not poor, we're about 107% of the national average in terms of uh, per capita, uh, gross domestic product per capita in the state of California. But that means we're not at 125%, we're at 107%. We're not as well off as we used to be. We still continue to have actually moderate tax rates overall, believe it or not. We're about 20th on the list of tax burden. But it means because we're not as rich as we used to be, That we get less in the way of tax dollars so we now face a decision do we want to continue with high services in which case we're going to have to tax ourselves more that's just the simple truth of it or we're going to cut some of those services not be as high amenity a state and have moderate services now there's another way too which is to see can't we be a lot more efficient in what we do but there's not as many efficiency savings as some people think. A lot of what we've got to do is just choose which programs we are going to spend our money on. Um, so what could we do? Well, here's just some quick ideas. Uh, we're already on the way to maybe better districting because we've got a commission that's working on that right now. That may lead to more competition in the political realm. That could be good. Bruce Kane's the expert on this. I think it will only mean a few more seats will be competitive, something like that. The top two primary was just approved, which will uh, hopefully lead to more centrist candidates, but most political scientists aren't sure that's going to make a big difference. Personally, I think it's worth a try because I think it may push more candidates towards the center, get away from the notion that we have so many extreme candidates in the state of California, and therefore lead to more centrist thinking. And I also think Prop 25, which is on the ballot right now, is a good idea, a majority vote for a budget. There'll still be a two-thirds vote for taxes. So that will control to some extent spending, but at least we might get some budgets done on time. A better tax system would be nice, uh, but in a reform commission about, about a year ago, tried that, didn't get anywhere, it seems hard to do. If we can't get a better tax system, we at least have to have some kind of rainy day fund because we can't live with the volatility we have. The governor yesterday started the process of creating a real rainy day fund. That's one of the big things he did yesterday. Uh, in the, the budget that was passed with the Democrats and Republicans getting together and doing that. We now have a rainy day fund. Healthcare care, controlling health care costs would be nice, but that's mostly a national problem. Pension costs, that's another thing that the budget yesterday started to do, is to start to deal with the fact that we just can't afford the pension costs that we currently have. We've got to control criminal justice costs, maybe creating a sentencing board so we don't have the crazy quilt that we now have of sentences, some of which are clearly counterproductive because it leads to people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s being in prison, an age where most people do not commit crimes. But we're spending $50,000 or so per person to keep them in uh, prison and, furthermore, paying their health care costs, which are enormous and made even greater because sometimes they have to be sent out to hospitals with two guards with them, which is extremely expensive every time we do that kind of thing saying no to the California Correctional Peace Officers Association with respect to salaries and pensions. We can't afford to give them these very, very generous pensions they've got. And then finally, we've got to improve K-12. through We've got to improve it, I would argue, by actually putting more money into it, but doing it with the following deal. We'll give you money for merit pay. You've got to find ways to make sure you can judge who's doing a good job. That doesn't mean just test scores. It means peer review, observations of teaching. That's what I do in my school. I have uh, faculty members go in and observe the teaching of other people, write that up, and we use that as a basis for promotion and tenure. And we should be doing that in K through 12 as well, and adding merit pay. The better teachers get more. The bad teachers, goodbye. So there's some ideas. And I'll let Sonny and Bruce now go on and come up with theirs.
2: Thank you very much, and I appreciate how specific you were on some of your recommendations. Uh, I'm going to turn to Sunny now for her perspective from, a, you know, as he said, a very uh, rich and diverse background. And one thing I might mention, I hope that uh, when we've had the three formal presentations, people on the panel feel free to ask questions of one another. If you want to either challenge or endorse one of these perspectives, I think it'll help uh, heat up the dialogue a little bit as well. Sunny?
1: Great. Thank you so much, uh, Dick, for... Uh, letting me be here today. I'm not quite sure how I got included in the class of 68, but Didi and uh, Peter, thank you. And uh, Henry, thanks for that great great overview and setup. Um, Perhaps it would be helpful if I just did a little bit of disclosure, uh, so you sort of know where I'm coming from. Um, I grew up on a dairy farm in the San Joaquin Valley, and uh, so I uh, a farm background is really instructive because you had to make things work if they're broken. And my parents didn't have the benefit of going to college, so the one thing they wanted more than anything else for their kids was to get a college education. So I sit here today because the uh, taxpayers of the state of California and the regents paid for my education. I think in the last 40 years, I've actually returned in taxes that I've paid a pretty good amount of, uh, dividends to that investment by the taxpayers. And so I am fiercely, uh, uh, behind the notion that we have to have, uh, higher education and research as the bedrock of California's economic prosperity. That's a given where I start from, but we can do so much better across the board in how we spend the current tax dollars, and uh, at the same time, we need to invest more. And that's the conundrum that California faces, in my opinion. So I've spent four decades really in the trenches, uh, working from healthcare. I got my... Master's of Public Health here at Berkeley, an undergraduate at at Santa Barbara, uh, working in business, working in in government, and it's those two perspectives that actually need to be brought together to govern, with all of you much more involved. There's enough wisdom in this room, and I have to salute you for being here at 9 uh, a.m., enough wisdom and enough experience to actually run the state. Uh, The problem is we've got a a governance system that doesn't actually engage or build upon the talents that Californians offer. So I often say California is not only broke; it is broken, and all of the problems that Henry you talked about, I'll just uh, I'll stipulate to. But I think it goes much deeper. And forgive me, I might be too simple. But I go back to sort of that 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 farm experience. I think. Uh, Part of, in fact, the underlying problem for California and why it's broken is that about uh, three or four decades ago, government and our our government leaders didn't understand the world was changing. We live in a global economy and uh, the whole system of governance has no relationship to how do we provide all of you, the taxpayers, a much better deal and be a lot more productive if we're competing with other countries. So that metric of the per capita uh, state domestic product is a really good one. It should be up higher, and I will tell you it's not that hard to get it much higher. If we can attract capital investment into California and generate jobs. But the value proposition for taxpayers, the value proposition for any investor is uh, so... It's on one hand so low compared to elsewhere and on the other hand not even known in most cases because you don't know what you're getting. So I now have spent the last two years trying to get the the legislature to adopt into the budget, which they didn't do yesterday, very basic notion of what we call results-based government or performance-based management. Sometimes it's referred to as performance-based budgeting, like can we tell you what you're going to get as an outcome for any expenditure? But it goes much beyond budgeting. It's this notion of, so what are the results? Because you actually have to have people who manage. It was a great surprise to me that I got recruited um, as someone from the other party to work for Governor Schwarzenegger. They were totally desperate. I mean, that's why <laughs> I got appointed. They were within two weeks of uh, being sworn into office, and they, uh, and this is Arnold Schwarzenegger and Maria Shriver, have a great partnership around values, and they thought they could just recruit smart people, but they wanted to have a cabinet that looked like California. And they needed to get someone at business transportation and housing because in is the Department of Motor Vehicles, and they were going to roll back a car tax, and they needed someone to oversee this. I had negotiated that car tax structure with Governor Wilson. So, mind you, this sort of poetic justice in history where now it's my job to try to roll it back. But they were looking for more women, Democrats, and someone who had a connection to business. That's a small universe in California. <laughs> and so that's how they got to me. And uh, I, was, I was absolutely honored to be asked to come serve. And yes, that department or agency was considered the largest. Uh, 14 operating departments, Caltrans, CHP, Alcoholic Beverage Control, Department of Managed Healthcare. Um, I felt like it was redemption. Berkeley might not take back my MPH because now I was back into healthcare and um, 42,000 employees. The embarrassment is it is not the largest department in terms of employees. The largest department is corrections. And that is absolutely an indictment of how we run things in the state of California. Now, in every one of our departments, I came in very naively and said, well, we're going to now change how we manage things. We're going to manage outcomes. Every department and every executive team said, we can't do that, it's going to take us forever. I said, well, we're going to do it in 90 days, because A, you can, B, we have to, and C, you know everything anyway. It just took a little bit of leadership. And the best success story is that the DMV had wait lines of an average of about an hour when I got there. And by the time the first year was up, we were at an average of 21 minutes. That was done with 7,800 public employees who were so demoralized when I got there. We didn't have any new money, no new people, but, uh, yes, new leadership, new focus. Uh, I started uh, with two meetings a day. It went to one meeting a day, one meeting a week, never less than one meeting a month with the team, and I still uh, go and meet with the DMV folks because they're really dedicated. The point of this story is there was uh, a huge ability to make things better by just talking in these simple terms about what are we going to achieve and then measuring it and publishing it every quarter. We saved $181 million overall and every metric improved. So now to the big ideas. We, I've supported all of the reforms of let's go to a redistricting commission, open primaries, uh, but they're sort of moving the deck chairs uh, around California unless somebody knows what you want to get done. And so infusing into the state a requirement of performance, uh, results government at every level would be the first major reform, and that actually probably is something to put in the Constitution. Uh, Every politician... Every level of government should be held accountable for big outcomes. Five of them is how everything should be aligned to achieve this. The first is, are kids learning in school? The second is, is employment going up? The third is, is crime going down? The fourth is, is poverty going down? And the fifth is, is health status improving? If everything was aligned to those five, you would have huge results, uh, improvement, and then you'd want to spend more money. You'd want to, you would want to invest more taxes. At BTNH, $11 billion in my budget, and only $13 million of it was general fund. Now, we've gone through 100 days of another nosebleed in California getting to a bad budget. That uh, on Thursday, I was talking to the bond buyers conference in California, and 92% of them said in a survey they thought the budget was going to be unbalanced by the time we got to the end of the year. Well, I, that's right, they are, they are right. they're right, they're pretty smart. We've gotten just one bad budget after another. And the next big idea is, in that general fund, you heard it from Henry, I'm gonna tell you my description of the buckets. You first have education, and let me hasten to say, there's a big difference between higher education and K-12. But that's about half of the expenditures. Then there's health and welfare. And then there's prisons. There's very little else that in the general fund is actually uh, invested in California. Most of my stuff was enterprise funds at BTNH. All of those uh, first two are done by people other than the state of California. You know, the money is approved for higher education. The university spends it. Money is approved for K-12. It goes out to 1,000 or so different school districts. Fifty-eight counties administer the entire health and welfare system that is on that, that budget at the state. And the problem is that we do not have government moved as close to the people or as close to the problem as possible. So the next big idea is all of those five overall outcomes that I just talked about need to be the responsibility of cities, counties, and school districts held accountable, and their revenues need to be guaranteed to them, revenues revenue streams, tax bases, in the constitution, outside the general fund, so the world operates, whether or not 121 politicians can agree on a budget. That's how many people have held up the operation of a 38 million person state. That's how many politicians vote on the budget, the governor and the 120 in the legislature. The last thing I'll I'll stop with, I could go on with innovations, is think about, as I said, Earlier, that the bedrock of our economy, how California competes globally, is by adding ideas, knowledge to a product. Sort of call our, you know, our, our knowledge-based economy. It's the university. It's higher education. It is, um, it is research. There is not a very agile interface between our higher education institutions and research and the private sector. Smart people come out of universities, they start businesses, but there's not a real use of all the knowledge that this land-grant university was intended to uh, and infuse into its, its, its body politic in, 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 our, in our enterprise. So in, in most regulations, most regulatory systems are so, are so arcane, we're so tied up in our own jockstrap you can hardly get out of um, the, the, the constraints to actually innovate. So I propose we have a literally an omnibus regulatory innovation um, bill that any, any group of private sector folks can come to their regulatory agency if that regulatory agency has been able to say we're trying to achieve X by Y. Let's take Prop 32. Now we're trying to undo it. That's Prop 23, sort of cute. Uh, the governor uh, put forward um, that let's reduce greenhouse gas emissions and get to 20 percent reduction by 2020, 50 percent reduction, excuse me, 80 percent reduction by 2080. That's that's what's in Prop 32. The it folks, AB 32. AB 32. I'm sorry. Thank you, Bruce. The proposition to undo it, 23, just sort of suspends indefinitely until we get to what 5% five percent, five and a half employment. <laughs> But my point being, my point being here, what if you just said to the private sector, you can come to the California Air Resources Board and tell us a better way of doing this. Uh, and you can put up bonds and, and performance. We want, we want the private sector to be able to say, we can do this better, get to that goal cheaper, more cost-effectively to call upon innovation. So that's, that's a big idea. Let me tell you why the private sector sort of is fueling this undoing of AB 32, of our goals on greenhouse gas emissions, that's emblematic of why California is broken. The Air Resources Board has already hired another 123 people to review plans that haven't been submitted. So that kind of bureaucracy sort of run amok is what gets us to outrage, And why politicians are fearful of taxpayers? Why there's this gulf, and why uh, all of you should be absolutely pounding on the table, asking for a better return on your investment, and folks will actually start getting things done. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, Well, I. Going last, um, I'm going to agree with uh, some of the ideas that I heard before me. Um, but, I, you know, just to, just in Dick's spirit, I will pick some fights just for the fun of it. Um, and I'll start with the, uh, you know, the results government idea. I, th- I, I think that makes sense in some sense, uh, but I, I, I worry a little bit that it has the same problems that the testing has with the school reform. And I say this from personal experiences. I am filling out uh, 30 to 40 pages of paperwork for UC about all the things that I've done over the last three years, and, um, which is, again, results-based and you know what have you been doing with your time. And I, I think what we really have to worry about, in addition to maybe publicizing what government does, is we do have to fix some of the incentives and merely having people report their activities doesn't necessarily get to the incentive that somebody has in their job to do it more efficiently or more creatively. So I think it's a start, but I think you really have to undo some of the incentives that are in government, and I'll talk about that. Um, But let me also be a skeptic about everybody's mindset, because living on the East Coast has at least the virtue of reminding me that while we're different, we're not as different as we like to think we are and I will say point number one is there are multiple paths to governmental dysfunction we happen to be on we happen to be on one of them but there are others that are just as bad or worse and I if you, ha- if you don't believe me read about New York State okay or look at the pension problems in Illinois which are far worse than the ones we have in this state so Point number one is uh, there are multiple paths. Point number two is that you cannot design institutions to prevent stupidity. Okay? <laughs> we worry about that. We think about that. We try to lessen the odds of stupidity. But stupidity is in our future, just as it's been in our past and is in the present. Um, And that stupidity is not simply the stupidity of politicians, because actually a lot of the politicians are quite intelligent and uh, very thoughtful. It's the stupidity of all of us. There were a lot of people at Berkeley that believed in the dot-com boom. A lot of students left school in sophomore and junior year. A lot of faculty believed that this was the future. And we made a lot of fiscal decisions based on thinking that that was going to continue forever, and it didn't. A lot of us believed that the housing prices would continue to increase, and that our retirement was safe in having equity in a house, right? So you can't get rid of bubbles. You can't get rid of the uncertainty that's in life, which when then you look back on it and you say, boy, we were stupid. (laughs) Well, yeah, retrospectively we were stupid, but it didn't seem stupid at the time. So Again, there's only so much we can do with our institutional engineering, and we're going to have the we're going to have stupidity problems over and over again, you know. Uh, and then, lastly, we have to accept the fact, however sad it is, that big ideas have to be done incrementally. The demise of the constitutional convention idea is not a typical of what's going on in the country. If you look back at the history of constitutional conventions at the state level, they were a dime a dozen in the 19th century. There were hundreds of them, and they were successful. And many states have multiple constitutions over time because it was easy to change constitutions. If you look at what happened in the first half of the 20th century, the rate sort of cut in half, but there were at least dozens of new uh, constitutional forms that were passed by the states since 1984 there has been no state even states that have automatic consideration of conventions there have been no states that have successfully passed a new constitution and the reason is the same reason that Obama is struggling which is you can't do big ideas without paying a huge political cost it's always been the case that there's been a coalition of minorities to any big idea that's not new about politics and what I mean by that is that people will like something in it but the thing they hate is the thing that will motivate them to say no and so the coalition of objections creates a situation where any one idea people might like or there might be a majority but the sum of those ideas which might be coherent everybody rejects because the one part of it that they care about isn't exactly the way they want it. And that, of course, is a logic that made health care reform so hard and makes constitutional reform absolutely impossible. So was it a surprise that the money went away? No. Did the Bay Area Council handle it in a way that maximized the chances of success? No. That lottery idea was wacko. you know, somehow they believe you didn't have to that know anything after, about government. That
1: was after I was at the Barry Council, by the way.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you clarified that. So. Although I never would have assumed you'd go for that idea. I mean, the, the notion that knowing nothing was an advantage, uh, just, it, you know, obviously I've got a prejudice because I'm an institution that believes that you're better off knowing something than not knowing something. That's, that is our fundamental ideological premise for the University so I walked in there probably biased against the idea and I left even more biased uh, than I was before and then the second half of their idea was to load it up with local government officials and I'm gonna come back to Sonny's idea because that's the one big idea that we really need to to talk about more in the state because more people don't realize it that a lot of our problems have to do with the disjunction between the state paying for local services and and local government making decisions that aren't tied to the revenues they have to locate and so it has an accountability component so I'll come to that so those are my three caveats to start with Uh, so my two big ideas uh, which have been touched on one is we need to do initiative reform because no matter what good we do right now if we don't change the initiative system it'll be undone by some coalition of angry people who at the moment think they have a good idea but haven't thought it through all the way. And some of us will vote for it because at the time we'll think it's a good idea and we won't have read all the various pieces of it. And we obviously can't get rid of the initiative system uh, and it's hard to change the initiative system. And I think that the latest wave of thinking after 30 years of listening to all these things is to try to get some amendments to the system. And the sort of latest twist on that is to make it easier to change initiatives. Uh, So you'll see in The California Crack-Up and some of these other books, these are ideas that have been around for 20 years, but they're getting a lot more salience, which is don't let people write statutory amendments that can't be changed by the legislature. And then try to move more things that are done by initiative constitutional amendment into the statutory realm. So it's not that voters can't weigh in on budgetary matters, although I really think they shouldn't, especially if you look at the PPIC poll and you realize that most people have no idea what the budget, what's in the budget and what the proportions are. But never mind all that. Let's assume that we have to deal with the public's desire to mess with budgetary matters. Let's at least make it correctable. Now, uh, and, and so I would... Recommend that no budgetary matter be handled as an ICA, an initiative constitutional amendment, but it should be only statutory and after some reasonable period of time, uh, amendable. Uh, so I really do think that the other aspect of that is the asymmetry problem, which is that in the, in, when you have an asymmetry of rules in politics, power flows to the lower threshold. So if you go one path that requires a supermajority vote, and the other you require a majority vote. Guess where all the smart people are going to go? Okay, even the dumb people will go there because they'll figure it out eventually. And so, what we have in California, ironically, is an inverted democracy. That is to say, uh, we we have a simple majority rule for constitution setting the rules of the game, but we have supermajority rule for the most important thing we do in Sacramento, which is make the budget. Which, by the way, is the opposite of the dysfunction in the federal system where we have uh, actually uh, budget rules that are majority rules at the federal level, but we have supermajority rules for almost everything else, including uh, judicial appointments. And hence, uh, you know, a lot of those are being uh, held up. So, but at any rate, at both the federal and, uh, and the state level, you have to have symmetry at a minimum and we can't make it easier to make the budget process at the initiative system uh, through the initiative system and then scratch our heads and wonder why we keep passing all these measures and trying to do the budget through the initiative system so there has to be symmetry at least and I agree with Henry Uh, to me it makes more sense to have stronger accountability there's an argument for the two-thirds vote and the argument is that it creates a more stable consensus about budgets over time and you know if that's what you want then the top two primary and the uh, legislate your way to center, to, uh, you know, uh, create districts for centrists, and then the two thirds vote all pushes the thing to, uh, you know, this very uh, median voter oriented system. And so there's a logic to all that. The only, you know, we do eventually pass the budget, but I think the accountability is lost. Nobody knows who to be angry at under this system, and I think the argument for what Henry wants to do is it makes sense to me, which is. Let's make it, I think it should be, again, harder to do constitutional amendments. It should be supermajority rules for, uh, for ICAs, initiative constitutional amendments, majority vote for statutory amendments, which puts it on the same par as what the legislature does. That's what we should do. And then we've you know, taken the inverted democracy and we've got something much similar to what classic democratic principles say. Then lastly, I want to come back to Sonny's. Uh, notion because she and I are hundred percent in the same place on this which is if you look at this state and go back to the the kind of look at the wealth and uh, what we do with our wealth rel- relative to other states we are our state expenditures um, based on GDP are below average our state revenues are above average our local expenditures are way above average and our local revenues are below average Okay, so let me unpack all that. What that means is, back when we passed Prop 13, we took away a major local revenue source. The state came in, bailed them out. That was supposed to be temporary. It became permanent. So now we have local governments making decisions about expenditure, but getting paid for by, uh, you know, getting bailed out by the state. So the most partisan part of our government, where the interest groups are powerful and mobilized, make the decisions about raising taxes and, uh, you know, revenue uh, to pay for local governments. Um, and what we need to do is get to a system where there's more accountability at both levels. The state should be paying for state services. The local governments should be, have more freedom to collect the revenues and make the tough decisions about what services they want to provide. If they want, if Bell really wants to pay $800,000, then it ought to come out of their revenue okay they can think about it you know, okay but uh, what we don't want to do is get into a situation where um, you know people are making decisions from uh, based on a common pool and the pension system has this problem that you you spike it up in Lafayette and uh, you know basically the whole state pays for the spike pension so we need to get back to a system of uh, local accountability and that means that we can't have initiative measures set the rules for a jurisdiction on its own taxes. It's one thing, if the state electorate wants to say that for state taxes you need a two-thirds vote, fine, okay? But why should they tell a given jurisdiction that if it wants to raise fees or taxes with a majority vote, it can't do that? And I think that was a huge mistake that we made, allowing the state electorate to dictate what local jurisdiction could do. And that's where we have to get
2: back to local autonomy. Okay, thank you very much. Now, happily, we have substantial time for questions and answers. I have a couple of observations I'd like to make on the comments made, and then I have a, a question for the panel. So during this few minutes, you can be formulating your questions and look forward to hearing from all of you. Uh, the first thing I'd like to comment on is the issue of stupidity. And uh, this Before was... Before against it? Well, <laughs> it, it's a question where do I where do I fit on that continuum. Okay. Uh, and... One of my favorite things, uh, my wife Carolyn and I returned to Berkeley after living on the East Coast for many, many years, and one of my favorite sports is to read bumper stickers in Berkeley. And I think the last time, we, you know, a couple of years ago in our uh, 40th reunion, uh, my favorite one at that time is, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Uh, my favorite this year, and this speaks to the issue of stupidity, is if ignorance is bliss, why are so many people unhappy?
1: <laughs> so,
2: but, but then when you, started t- when you started talking about stupidity, I thought, well, that's really true, but certainly he's not talking about me. And then Bruce said, some people believed in the dot-com bubble, <laughs> and then some people believed in the housing bubble. So anyway, uh, w- there's a, a degree of culpability for all of us. Uh, Say no, I was very impressed by, again, the specifics of the things you raised and I was interested, Bruce, you're mentioning inverted democracy because that is one thing I've had a hard time understanding. You can say who marries whom with a 51% vote and yet it takes a two-thirds vote to have BART extended from the East Bay to San Jose. I mean, it's it's just a question of... uh, It's hard to get my hands around. The other thing is... uh, You've made some very important suggestions. My question for all of you is who to be angry at. I think that's the key thing. What's actionable for the average person? I think the interest in uh, referendums is because it's a way to make your anger felt or whatever. And I think you made an interesting point about the East Coast. Uh, You know, I think we think of Connecticut and we think of White Christmas. It's the most corrupt state I've ever lived in. Unbelievable. Uh, New York State, it's getting its, its uh, just rewards now. People are being very, very focused. But in California, and this is, all, I'll be kind of an equal opportunity abuser here in the sense that I was a media executive for many years, and I think the media does a horrible job of focusing on issues and pressure points. I think in what, you know, part of the discussion for this, uh, for this gathering is how do you break the Gordian knot? These are incredibly complicated issues. But if we start focusing, Sonny, going to your point of the, you know, the five Big things, thing. which I, I'm a great believer in that, and five, the number. But what if everyone out here wants to take action, where do they start? So maybe I'll start with you, Sonny, and everyone would like to speak to that. The question being, who are we angry at, and what needs to be changed, and what's plausible to change? You okay. know there are certain things that it's very difficult to impact, but where are the easiest places, the low-hanging fruit, etc.?
1: So I'll start with telling you on the stupidity uh, spectrum I'm, I'm closer to stupid than smart. Um, and I, I, I never fail to be surprised at my own ignorance, so uh, I'll start mm-hmm. there. Um, and I learn something every time I get into one of these kinds of conversations. In politics, there's a there's a saying: "Don't get mad, get even." So, so it's 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 important to recognize that we're all angry, that we're all very frustrated. But now, let's go to how do you break through that that Gordian knot? I will give you one. I'll give you two suggestions of how to do it, not necessarily exactly what to do. Um, the first is sort of a, a commercial for the organization that I'm now working with, called California Forward that the foundations, big foundations, Irvine and Packard and, and Hewlett and the California Endowment and Haas are putting uh, unusually large amounts of money into this organization to uh, promote reform, government reform. And so uh, California Forward has supported the uh, election reforms that Henry talked about, we advanced a very comprehensive six-point uh, plan for budget and finance reform, and next year moving to, we'll go back because the state didn't adopt it now, and we'll go back to that, plus this notion of the relationship between the state and locals. And, and we do talk about results-based government. So I'm going to tell you, you and go to the website, California Forward. We want to engage all of you. The second is, I really, I mean this sincerely, talking directly to all of your elected representatives and asking them, so what is it you're doing to get to the big five? Now, you use the word accountability both in a very positive way, but thought perhaps there is this tendency in government to get results-oriented stuff to be so bureaucratic that you're just spending all your time doing paperwork. Uh, When I talk about it, I can give you examples of how it's worked because you put smart people, or you put enough people in a room, and uh, the smarter ones are going to offset the stupider ones. Uh, You get sort of, uh, you can get to the intelligence of the commons, which I do uh, subscribe to, and so um, being being persistent in asking your elected representatives what are you doing to get to these outcomes? And if that's published, if the public has that information, it actually is very, very powerful. Uh, Then, actually, that information becomes the report card on the incumbents. It is the uh, ready-made commercial for the the challengers, if you will. It uh, starts to make very transparent, what are we doing? So, so that would be my, my answer, and I can comment more on some of these other things.
2: Now we have just a couple of minutes left, so I'd like to open it to the panel. Uh, Sonny, you made a very concrete suggestion. For you know, obviously, this is a very engaged audience; they care. Uh, they're asking. They've asked excellent questions. And I think one of the frustrations is how do they stay involved. You gave a concrete suggestion, which was California Forward, encouraging everyone to go to the website, which I I will do. So that's something we can do. I don't know does anyone else want to add to that or reflect anything for a person who is concerned how would you encourage them to stay engaged on the topics we've been discussing
3: well I think there are events around the university here where we talk about specific issues certainly at the public policy school we have ongoing series of seminars and events which will at least keep you informed about what's going on so that's and the Goldman School website the Goldman School of Public Policy the Goldman School of Public Policy yeah. website yes so I have to email. And and, well. oh great Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you yeah. Yeah. Yep, please, please be happy to have you.
1: I feel really uh, privileged to somehow be um, adopted by the class of 68. And since, uh, Didi, you said you have quarterly meetings, uh, I want to offer not only can you go to the California Forward website, but if you want, we'll come to a quarterly meeting and have more discussion. Oh, great. The
0: quarterly meeting in March has now been designated as an open house for other alums from other classes to join with us at that time. So if you
3: sign up for the Cal 68 at blueconnect.org or just information, you and your
0: class will be invited to participate in a grand session so that after eight years, hopefully one thing you could do in your classes is figure out at least how to meet every two years and not every six months and not every five years. Uh, around the uh, homecoming event and have some content, uh, opportunities, So we're happy to share
2: that, that model. Bruce, do you have anything to add, particularly because you have a center in, in Washington, D.C.? Perhaps some of the alums are coming from far and wide for this, uh, this event.
0: Well, they're certainly welcome to come to the center, and certainly we do what we can. Uh, somebody was urging that we train students uh, and we do that, too. But, of course, the incentives in the system are awfully powerful, and so even well-trained students can be led awry when they, uh, they get uh, into the system. I do want to come back, though, because <laughs> you didn't let me, okay. and say that I really think that there are important problems in California, but uh-huh. I really think that um, it doesn't make sense to say that we're in the abyss and we're falling mm-hmm. apart, because I think the problem, when the reform community says things like that, and then we don't fall apart. It undercuts the credibility of the reform committee, community. And I think the story is we have substantial problems. Some of them are national in origin. Many of them are national in origin. And some of them are California specific. And those problems have to be addressed. But I think it, we have to keep a more balanced perspective. Mm-hmm. We're not going to fall apart. The state isn't. Uh, it may be declining gradually, and that's something to arrest. But we're not going to fall apart suddenly. Uh, and there is time to work on these problems. And I want to say California Forward is the only hope right now. Any change that has to happen in the state has to be bipartisan, and it has to be um, heavily negotiated and thought through. And that's what I meant by doing incremental reform, because you guys do incremental reform through either amendment or through the legislature, but do it in a coherent, consistent way. And I think California Forward is the only mechanism out there that has... uh, got the right idea about how to get something done and a record of success
1: you know uh, I, you quoted uh, uh, Kevin Starr mm-hmm. and I'm a, I'm a fan of our, our librarian emeritus and historian right. he has a term he uses that sort of fits with what I do these days in technology which is we need to reboot California we need a new operating system uh, <laughs> and so that's what I've been trying to to suggest here I want to hasten to say Bruce you are right that there is so many strengths and if you're going to ever have a solution you play to strengths minimize weaknesses part of the the question that you asked on the lobbyists it doesn't over worry me lobbyists are always in the business of saying no very few really unless they're trying to get some special consideration for them and the politics of yes is so much more difficult but it actually isn't impossible when you get a critical mass of folks together such as here. That's why I am hopeful. A
2: perfect way to conclude and you set me up perfectly to read from Kevin Starr which is uh, I think that uh, Bruce has made an excellent point. We can't give up. We can't get overly discouraged and when you read this is a portion of uh, Starr's book where he talks about the the first constitution of the state of California in 1849, and in that constitution, only white males were granted the franchise. African Americans, Chinese, and Native Americans were denied the rights of citizenship and prohibited from testifying against whites in court. You could go on. We've come a long way. We do have a great university system, and I think perhaps the bottom line is uh, I'll quote Martin Luther King, who said, "Progress is not inevitable," and I think that's the key thing. We can go either way, and hopefully, everyone will stay involved and concerned, and we can we can move forward. So, I'd like to thank the panel very much, and all of you for, for coming.